Prestige listeners, it's Derek again, joined as always by my co-host Danny Bessner, and we are very grateful to have for the third time uh, joining us uh, Professor Rashid Khalidi, who is uh, the Professor of Modern Arab Studies, the Edward Said Professor, excuse me, of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. Uh, the book that we've been discussing now um, for two, this is our third episode, so please go check out uh, the first two if you haven't already. Uh, the book is The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonial and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. Uh, check that out and purchase it if you are able uh, and haven't already done so. Professor Khalidi, once again, thank you so much for coming on the program. And thanks again for having me. So last time we basically got through World War II. So I wanted to begin this discussion with a question about 1945 and that period immediately after. So first of all, as a historian, I was wondering if you could just let us know what's going on with the major actors, the decline of the British, the rise of the United States, uh, people who are literally in uh, Israel-Palestine. But then also a question that I'd love for you to address is, is the normative question, right? Because this is the the message that you get growing up in, in sort of a, a Jewish intellectual milieu in the post-Holocaust. Holocaust era, which is that, you know, Holocaust, then Israel. You know, this is often like, you know, this is what they did to us, so this is what we need to do. We need to have a national estate based on ethnicity, religion, however you want to define it. So if you could just talk a little bit about the historical, and then also what you think from the perspective of 2022 should have normatively been done, if anything, with this sort of displaced Jewish population, post-genocided population of Europe. Well, I mean, this is a history of Palestine. And so what's happening in Europe and the Holocaust and what's happening to the Jewish people is of enormous importance to Palestine. I mean, it determines the future of Palestine. In fact, nothing that the Palestinians do or say or are able to articulate has much impact. Uh, this determines outcomes. World War II determines outcomes. The Holocaust determines outcomes. The drive and the strength of the Zionist movement and its support determines outcomes. So... What could have, should have, would have, might have happened, we don't talk about that historians. Those are the might have bits <laughs> of history. Um, but let me set the stage and then, and then address the, the second part of your question. The moment that Hitler invades Russia and the moment that the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, the world changes fundamentally and permanently from a Western European dominated system to one dominated by the United States, with the United States and the Soviet Union as a sort of second superpower. And that has all kinds of effects everywhere. Um, you know, it takes a couple of years during the war for all of that to make itself clear. But by the end of the war, peoples all over the world are no longer willing to put up with colonialism because the Dutch and the British and the French and the Belgians and so forth have been shown to be paper tigers by their own countries being occupied by the Nazis or by their colonial possessions being occupied or attacked by Japan. And national movements are arising and we're, we're in the era of decolonization. As soon as the war is over, actually, this begins to happen. And it's happening in India and it's happening in Palestine. It's happening everywhere. It's happening in Egypt. It's happening in Indonesia and so on. It takes a little longer in some places. And those changes have multiple impacts on Palestine. First of all, whatever the British had done to support Zionism up to 1939 and from their perspective, 
betrayal of, of Zionism in 1939 with the white paper is suddenly much less important. Britain doesn't decide stuff in the Middle East. They still think they do right up to the Suez War of 1956, but they don't. They're wrong. And the Americans and the Soviets bring them up very, very short in 1956 by basically booting them and the French right back out of Egypt after they invaded together with Israel. It takes a little while for that lesson to sink into the more benighted members of the British ruling class, but they're not, you know, masters of the universe anymore. The Americans are, and the other people who are a big actor are the Soviets. And that's immediately, the effect of that is immediately felt in Palestine. That is the effect of American dominance of the post-war order. And it, it's reflected finally in the, in the partition resolution of 1947 and in the independence of Israel, which is supported and, and, and brought into being in large part by American Soviet support, arms, diplomatic recognition, but especially the passage of the partition resolution, which gives most of the country over to the Zionist movement as a Jewish state, and which makes no provision to protect the Arab state, which is overrun first by the Israeli forces and then taken over, bits of it are taken over by the Arab armies. So the great powers set this in motion and they do nothing to prevent it from happening. In fact, they, they, they facilitate its happening. Both are arming Israel during the 48-49 war. That's the global picture. And all of this is taking place against the background of the beginning of the Cold War and American-Soviet rivalry. They are both competing for the affections of the new Jewish state, by the way, because many other countries in the region are seen as clients of the British. And so both powers are trying to supplant the British in the Middle East. And it's one of the less visible elements of rivalries between imperial powers, between Britain and France during the interwar period, between the Americans and the British, who are allies in the post-war period. And Palestine is part of that large checkerboard, as between the two superpowers. At the same time, something else fundamental has changed because of the war. And I mentioned this in, I think, the last segment of your podcast, which is that the basic argument of Zionism that Jews cannot live safely amongst Goyim and that they have to have a refuge. But moreover, that refuge has to be a national project, a nation state. And it has to be in Palestine, obviously, which is a minority position, a powerful position, a well-funded position supported by the British. But Jewish communities all over the world are not entirely convinced until the Nazis come to power. Suddenly, the force of that argument is enormously strengthened. This is even before the Holocaust i.e. before they began to massacre people. It was very clear that you couldn't live as a Jew in Germany. And as Germany takes over more and more of Europe, you can't live in Europe or much or most of Europe. So A, the strength of the argument internally is enormously increased. And you have meetings and conferences and so on in the United States in the, during the war in which major elements of the Jewish community come over to support Zionism, which they really didn't to the same extent uh, before World War II. And that's happening all over the world. Something else is happening as the revelations of the death camps finally leak out at the very end of the war and, and immediately after the war, when this very few survivors are liberated by Soviet and American troops. And there's an enormous and perfectly legitimate sense of guilt on the part of countries that could have and should have taken people who were able to flee before the war and refused to because of their racist immigration policies. And this includes Britain and the United States and other countries. Those racist immigration policies are not changed after World War II. Had there been true contrition for the sins of countries that closed the doors on Jews who were thereby, as a result, massacred, you would have had those doors open, those doors of immigration. 
And most of the poor displaced persons who survived the concentration camps and the death camps would have probably gone to countries like the United States, Canada, and elsewhere. They were not allowed to do so. And that created an enormous pressure on Palestine. And it was leveraged by President Truman, who was unwilling to force the American Congress to change American immigration law, but was perfectly willing to force the British to allow 100,000 displaced persons, survivors of the death camps, into Palestine. This is 1946-47. So and there's the also Holland- the post-war pogroms in, in Poland and things like that, which, yeah. which the Western powers, if I recall correctly, don't do much about. I mean, anti-Semitism is still there. <laughs> yeah. It's not like anything's changed just because the Nazis have been defeated. I mean, anti-Semitism is in the United States, for heaven's sakes, in American lawmakers refusing to allow Jews into the United States. That's anti-Semitism. I mean, it's, it's not like the Nazis are the only anti-Semites. They're by far the most virulent, the worst, and so on and so forth. So, yes, there is that. I mean, that, it is anti-Semitism that is responsible for the failure to change these immigration laws in countries like the United States. And you have, therefore, a narrative, which is essentially a Zionist narrative, which is accepted by most, I think, people, Jews and non-Jews, in the wake of World War II, which goes more or less along the lines of, of what you said, Daniel. You know, you had the Holocaust, and this is the recompense for the Holocaust. And this is, you know, if this happens, then this has to happen, because it's the only way to make up for it. So you have the miracle of the establishment of Israel in the wake of the horror of the genocide of more than half of European Jewry. And, of course, that completely ignores the fact that Arab countries being taken over to create this refuge and depopulated. You can't do it otherwise. You cannot turn an Arab country, majority Arab country, two-thirds Arabs in 1948, into a majority Jewish country without changing the demography by booting out the as many as possible of the majority and introducing as many as possible a new, new citizens. And the, the dragnet for those new citizens is wide. I mean, it includes Arab Jewish communities, some of which are persecuted, but some of which are not. The Yemeni Jews are flown to, to Israel even though there's no particular problems for them in, in Yemen, they're discriminated against, but there are no pogroms, there's no riots, or at least by and large, the Yemeni Jewish community was not particularly interested in emigrating. And they're just shipped out in a deal between the United States, the Israeli government, and the Imam of Yemen, who I think gets money for it or something. Um, one of my students has written a dissertation on this, actually. So that narrative is one that elides, blots out, eliminates what's being done to the Palestinians as a necessary evil, or it didn't happen. Oh, no, they left on their own accord, or their leaders told them to, or their leaders were Nazis and they deserve it, or whatever. Any number of pretexts are, are concocted in order to blot out the fact that three-quarters of a million people are displaced in order to make space for these people who are being brought in, essentially, in order to turn a country that's majority Arab-owned into a country which the Israeli state controls the land of, in order to, to transform a country that's two-thirds Arab into a country that's majority Jewish. And so... That narrative, which has power for the reasons I've just said, is one that is designed to justify and explain what happens to the Palestinians without ever talking about the Palestinians. And by 69, you have Golda Meir, who's at that point the Israeli prime minister, saying there were no Palestinians. They did not exist. To say that there's a Palestinian people as apart from those that are in Jordan, especially, is... This is not true to, to fact and not true to history. And that's, you know, a, a typical process in colonial settler endeavors. 
to deny that the original population, even where their names, you know, we have Manhasset and we have Manhattan and we have Native American names in New York City where I live. But they've basically been not only eliminated, but their memory and their history has been eliminated. I mean, we don't know that the Lenape people or the Canarsie people lived here or there in you know this part of Brooklyn or this part of Staten Island or whatever. And the same thing happens to the Palestinians. Um, they're eliminated from their, their country in, in large part, but they're also eliminated as much as possible from history. I, I, I do want to see on the history, but I just want to just uh, highlight that this would be a really interesting moment to talk about like larger colonialisms and what these mm-hmm. sorts of moves actually suggest. But let's let's leave that aside. Derek, I know you have a you have a question. You situate in the book the events surrounding the partition within this sort of changing of the great power guard in the Middle East. A changing that, I mean, you know, you could argue wasn't even fully apparent to, let's say, the British until the Suez crisis. They didn't realize how much ground they had actually lost to the Americans. Right. But it's apparent from the way you tell it in the book, and I think apparent from the, the, the history itself, that the Zionist movement was able to... I don't know, understand or, or predict or envision uh, this changing the guard much more easily than the Palestinian leaders were. And you juxtapose, right. uh, for example, the formation of the Arab League, which is kind of the last gasp of uh, British imperialism in the Middle East and uh, as, as consequently excludes the Palestinians because it was, uh, you know, there was no British uh, willingness to let them be a part of the Arab League as mm-hmm. it was being formed, uh, versus the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry, which is conducted uh, it, it is the Anglo-American Committee, but it's done in Washington, D.C. It's very much an American project. And uh, you right. know, David Ben-Gurion and other Zionist leaders are clearly appealing uh, to the Americans as the, the the number one kind of power that they have to deal with. To what – why do you think that, that one side of this was able to understand the dynamic or kind of capitalize on the dynamic that it was emerging and the Palestinians were, were not able to do that? You know, not not just the I would say not just the Palestinians, but the well, Arabs sure, sure, generally, absolutely. Well, I mean, let's think about it. Who is Chaim Weizmann? He's a British subject. Who is David Ben Gurion? He grew up in Russia. Who is Golda Meir? She grew up in Milwaukee. Who are the leaders of the Zionist movement? They're Europeans. Who who was Theodore Herzl? He was an Austrian. The entire leadership of the of the movement. Who was Zev? Jabotinsky. Again, you go leader by leader, individual by individual, and you are talking about people who are, for all of the discrimination and anti-Semitism that they may have faced in different parts of Europe, Europeans. They speak those languages natively, and those are their native tongues. So Golda Meir speaks in an American accent. Uh, Abba Ibn speaks in a British accent, and so on and so forth. His father was Chief Rabbi, uh, Chaim Herzog's father was chief rabbi of Ireland. I mean, you could go down the list of Israeli leaders from the beginning of the Zionist project with Herzl and right up to the last generation before the last of, of Israeli leaders, up to Netanyahu, for heaven's sakes. He's an American, he's an Israeli, but he you know, grew up part of his life here in the States. And you were talking about people who are steeped in the politics and the culture and the intellectual life of the countries that they came from. Zionism in the Eastern European nationalist ideology. It grew up in Eastern Europe, among Eastern European Jews, reacting to the nationalisms of the Habsburg Empire and the Russian Empire, and thinking in Jewish national terms, the way Serbs and Poles and 
the Ukrainians and others in that part of the world where the majority of the Jewish population in the world lived at that time were thinking. So it's not a surprise that you have a movement led by people who are remarkably sensitive to the currents of world affairs. They're individuals who come from these countries. They come from Germany, they come from Britain, and so on and so forth, the United States. Ben-Gurion and, and, uh, and um, Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, who's the second president of the state of Israel, spent three years in New York organizing during and after, just after World War I. So they've lived in and worked in the United States. My father's generation, people much younger, in other words, are the first generation of Arabs who even go off to the West to study. So you do not have in leadership, in politics, in the upper classes, in the intelligentsia, in the middle classes, the same kind of expertise and knowledge of the West, foreign languages, ease with foreign politicians, and so on and so forth. You look at the delegations that go to London from Arab countries or, or Palestinian delegations, and they're ill at ease and they're, they're maladroit and they, you know, they don't know what to say and some of them don't speak English and so on and so forth. The Zionist delegations are full of people who are natives, in some cases, of the countries that they're visiting, at any rate, are acute and smart about the politics that they're going into. I mean, Weizmann was a master of British politics. He was a a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant player of, of British politics, for example. Chaim Weizmann, the first president of Israel. Just a very quick question, because this is such an important topic today. Is this in any way related to like the whitening of the Jewish population, not only in the United States, but on a global scale? Um, because this is, I think, the moment, the 40s and the 50s, at least when you're looking at American historiography, when Jews and, and Catholics, one might also add, become fully white. So yeah. um, this is obviously a different context, but whiteness does become a global phenomenon. So I was yeah. wondering if there's anything like that going on here. It's not usually talked about in this way. Like you said, I think it's usually talked about in having this sort of experiences, but I'm wondering if that is something, another process that's happening below the surface here. I think there's two things. I mean, I think that the process you're talking about of whitening is an American phenomenon because of the specific race dynamics of this country, the United States. But I think that the normalization of Jews, if you can call it that, in European consciousness is partly a function of the elimination of Jewish populations in so many parts of Europe the destruction by the Nazis of of most of the Jewish communities in many parts of Europe. And the fact that many other Jews then emigrate to Israel, strangely enough, I think changes the position of Jews in some of these European countries. I'm not sure that's true in others. It's probably not as true in England or or in um, maybe the United Kingdom, but it may be true in places like Germany and Eastern and Central Europe and Northern Europe, where the Jewish communities were destroyed by and large, Germany, Poland, and so on. I don't think it has the same effect on the Soviet Union. I think, you know, age-old anti-Semitism stays because most of the Jewish community in, in Russia, in Soviet Russia, and other parts of the Soviet Union, withdraws with the Red Army and are therefore saved from, you know, they, they suffer the tortures of, Stal- of Stalinism, but, and of Soviet and Russian anti-Semitism, but they're not wholesale massacred as they would have been had they been left behind to the tender mercies of the Nazis. So I think there are two, a couple processes at, at, at work there. And the American one is is a, a, almost a uniquely American one, <laughs> as Absolutely. so much else about this country is, 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 is yes. true. <laughs> unique, <laughs> not exceptional, <laughs> unique. All right, Derek, I know you had a you had a question. 
As we're at the at the brink here of the the partition, I wonder if you could give people a sense of the disparity that existed on the ground when the partition right. happened between the Zionist, uh, right. the Jewish agency, and the Palestinians, not just right. militarily. You know, we talked a little bit about the pre-independence fighting that went right. on, and not just in terms of relations with the great powers, but institutionally, you know, the, the right. way that the, the League of Man- Nations mandate was set up gave the Jewish agency the ability to create basically a proto-state where the Palestinians— well, that's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly you know, had, right. Had very little, uh, you know, in terms of institutions at that point. That's exactly right, Derek. The the British and the League of Nations saw to it that the future government of Palestine would be a Jewish government. That's what the British leadership intended, and that's what the League of Nations mandate um, oversaw: the creation of parliamentary institutions governmental institutions, foreign policy institutions, educational institutions, and military institutions, which were the embryo of a state. The state of Israel is created before May 15th, 1948. All that they do is they change the names. The political department of the Jewish agency becomes the foreign ministry. The the Haganah becomes the Israeli army, and so on and so forth. All of those things are in place and created by the Zionist movement with with the legal support of the mandate. I mean, the mandate talks about a diplomatic and other thing, other other governmental functions that a Jewish agency, which is instituted as part of what is mandated by the mandate, is supposed to do. So you have a quasi-state, centralized, unified, driven by the horrors of the Holocaust after World War II. I mean, people have enormous motivation. I mean, they not only are, are committed to this national project of creating a Jewish state in Palestine against, you know, difficult local odds, they now are driven by what they've seen in Europe and by the need to provide for the survivors. So you have a highly motivated, centralized, organized movement with very, very effective set of government institutions, which becomes the government of the state of Israel seamlessly on May 15th. They don't create anything ab novo. They do not create anything on May 15th. It's all there. The constituent assembly that votes is already in place. The government departments are already in place. The military forces are already in place. In fact, they've been carrying out military offensives across Palestine in the months, coordinated, organized, centralized, national military offensives. It's a small country, but still. In March, April, and May, up up until May 15th, before the state of Israel is created. And they're bringing in weapons and they have a financial department that's bringing in money and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, you have this. And this is a structure staffed by highly educated, highly experienced, politicized, motivated people, organized, centralized. It's a government. I mean, it's a very effective government. And what they do in the first year after Israel is created, uh, Tom Segev has written a wonderful book. They bring in a huge number of people. I mean, to do something like that for a new state is it's, it's inconceivable. New states in the Arab world crumble with a few hundred thousand refugees. They don't crumble, but they're, they're completely incapable of handling those kinds of catastrophic you know, events. The Israeli government does it. Now, there are all kinds of criticism been made, by the way, about the way in which these people were treated when they arrived, especially Oriental Jews. But that's another issue. You're talking about a highly capable functioning state on May 13th or 14th of 1948. On the other side, you have a society which is still 
uh, first of all, suffering from the effects of the repression of the 36-39 revolt. Now, you may say, well, why in 1947 has what happened in 1939 had such an effect? Well, first of all, a lot of the most effective leaders have been killed or exiled, and many of them can't come back. Or if they do, they slip into the country, and, and the British could have arrested them at any time. Uh, secondly, the, the Palestinians are, had been legally prevented by the British from creating the kinds of institutions that the mandate helped to create for the Jewish community in Palestine, for the issue. And the book lays this out in some detail. This was the way the mandate was written. There is no Palestinian Arab people in the mandate. There's a Jewish people with national rights and political rights. And in the mandate, the British are enjoined to create institute or help create in the creation of a bunch of institutions. The mandate says nothing about the Palestinians. The Palestinians are not mentioned. The word Palestinian is not in the mandate any more than it's in the Balfour Declaration. They are non-Jewish communities and they have civil and religious rights. They do not have political rights. So you can't vote. Why can't you vote? Because if you had to vote, the overwhelming Arab majority would have said, we don't want the Balfour Declaration. We don't want this country turned into the land of Israel. It's Palestine. So the British couldn't allow democracy and wouldn't allow democracy and wouldn't and couldn't allow representative institutions, which they gave to the Jewish minority or they allowed the Jewish minority to create. So you have a fundamental imbalance between a society that's highly literate, highly motivated, highly organized, and with a government structure and a military structure, and in a society that's much less well-developed, has much higher rates of illiteracy, is politically divided. I mean, Jewish society is politically divided, but when push comes to shove, the state is the state. The Palestinians don't have a central state. And so they are much less able to withstand both the military conflict and the expulsions and flights of people from areas that are overrun by the Zionist militias and later by the Israeli army, then is the new Israeli state. The new Israeli state does a fantastic job. I mean, when you consider what they managed to do in 47, 48, before the state's created, and then 48, 49, and 50, in absorbing new populations, and building up a military and so on and so forth. It's a remarkable uh, achievement. Um, the Palestinians just can't match that. Don't match that. And the Arab states are newly independent, feeble, uh, in some measure under foreign control, and disunited in, in helping them. So the Arab public opinion is terribly sympathetic. There are volunteers in the 30s who come to Palestine to help the Palestinians. There are volunteers in the 40s who come to Palestine to help the Palestinians. But the governments are inept, divided, corrupt, under foreign control, and most importantly, I, I have to repeat it, disunited. Abdullah and the Jordanians have one set of ambitions in cahoots with the Brits, with the British, and in some relationship with the Zionist movement. I mean, Abdullah is negotiating with them right up to 1948. Golda Meir, Moshe Sharet, the foreign minister Sharet, and later prime minister Meir, foreign, foreign minister, later prime minister, are the lead conduits together with several other people, for negotiations with Abdullah. And he wants to partition Palestine, take a peace for himself, and accept the establishment of Israel. Um, they fight because the, the Israeli army pushes into the areas that were allocated to the Arab state and pushes into Jerusalem. And at that point, he, he intervenes. And there's heavy fighting. And the Jordanian army, in fact, is by far the most competent military on the Arab side, even though it's not the biggest, partly because it's close partly because it had operated in Palestine under the British before. The British used the Arab Legion to garrison Palestine for part of the time before 1948. And partly because it has British officers. 
So, you know, the commander is a British major general. Most of the brigade commanders are British. Most of the officers, senior officers, and they're not just British, they're World War II combat veterans who fought from 1939 to 1945. They're extremely competent officers. They know how to do what they're doing. And so the Arab Legion is a formidable opponent, even though it's fighting on the defensive almost entirely through the war and gives up a lot of territory in the end. But they were by far the most serious opponent of the Israeli army during that war. Before we get into 48, I just want to not lose sight of Palestinian national consciousness, and and in particular as an intellectual historian. So maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about how does Palestinian national consciousness develop post-Balfour? I mean, I guess this Mm -hmm. is a long period, but uh, up until 48. What what is going on? Who are the major players? And what are are the nationalistic claims? What is the identity that is being formed that will become so crucial later on? You know, one of the problems with nationalism is that so much of it is contingent. You know, Greek nationalism looks as if it, you know, oh, it always was going to happen that way and blah, blah, blah. If the European powers hadn't destroyed the Ottoman fleet and the, and the Egyptian fleet in, 19, in 1827, the Greek War of Independence might have gone differently and Greeks might have had a different national outcome. If Hitler had been assassinated in 1932 and the Nazis hadn't come to power and that horrible storm of massacre and murder hadn't taken place, who knows how the Zionist movement would have developed. Had the French had problems with the Germans in 1918-1920 and not been able to occupy Damascus and drive King Faisal out, would Palestinians have thought of themselves as Syrians more than Palestinians? I mean, those are might have been of history. There's no point to thinking about them. But we think of Zionism as inevitably triumphing. We think of Greek nationalism as inevitably triumphing. Palestinian nationalists say, yes, of course, Palestine always was blah, blah, blah. That's nonsense. These things are contingent. They happened as they happened for the good reasons that they happened for, but they might not have happened that way had things, different things happened. So there are all kinds of ways in which Palestinians, the people we now call Palestinians, envisioned themselves on the eve of World War One and in the wake of World War One. Among, among them was as Ottomans or as people who were parts of families or identified with the cities or towns they lived in. And some of them had to do with national affiliations like Arab or Syrian. Over time, the Sykes-Picot partitions and the the way in which the British and the French dice up the Eastern Arab world comes to take on a a reality that overwhelms all these previous senses of identity. The Ottoman thing is gone. The religious sense is less important. Syria is chopped up into the parts Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Transjordan. And those identities become more and more powerful. There are roots for each of them. And the idea that Lebanon is created by the French is false. There is an idea of a Lebanese identity or of Lebanon as a place. The same is true with Palestine. But in the sense of a holy land, a little bit similar to the way in which it's transformed in Jewish consciousness from a largely religiously defined place into a nationally defined place. That's one of the things that Zionism does. And that's one of the things that Palestinian nationalism does. But Al-Ard al-Muqaddas, the holy land, and Beit al-Maqdis for Jerusalem, the house of holiness, are old ancient Arabic language terms going back to the, the, the Quran, actually, and probably before. And that idea of Palestine is holy because of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, because of Jesus, and finally because of, of Muhammad, is there among Muslims and Christians, as well as obviously Jews. And so that sense of Palestine as an entity or as a place, it's there. But transforming that into a national thing, that's that's the function of modern nationalism. And that happens 
a little bit before World War I, but mainly in the interwar period. And then the thing that really sort of seals Palestinian identity, sears it, is the is the Nakba, is the fact that three quarters or little more than half, I should say, not three quarters, little more than half of the Palestinian population are made homeless in the course of the creation of the state of Israel and their expulsion from their homes or their flight from their homes. And, and the fact they're never allowed to return and their homes are destroyed or taken over. And that's a searing traumatic, has a searing traumatic impact. I mean, you can think of any number of similar traumatic mass events that really change the way people think of themselves. And so, uh, and this is a political one. This is not a tsunami. This is not a, a hurricane or a, or some kind of natural event. This is a politically driven event. And it has a political impact in terms of identity, obviously. So you talk to Palestinians now, where are you from? Dude may be from, you know, Hoboken, but he'll say, oh, I'm from, you know, whatever. The village of X. Uh, I'm from Ramallah, from whatever. I'm, my family's from Jaffa. Uh, my family's from Jerusalem. May never have even seen Jerusalem. I mean, that's part of this identity that's been fashioned in part by the Nakba. And uh, people did say that before, but they actually lived in those places. <laughs> that's the right. difference. Right. And and no Jew today says I'm really from Warsaw, you know, or no, something like no, that. It's no, a different. No, no, no. Yeah, it, it's a very different. No. So actually, that, that just leads up um, perfectly. Maybe we could talk about the outbreak of war and the Nakba. And um, I don't know if this is your specialty, but I'd also love to hear your take on like the military aspects of it. How, right. how did it play out? Um, and what were the superpowers doing at the time? And, right. and how did it lead to Israeli victory? Right. Well, I think the key, the key two, three things, the key things to keep in mind are that the pre-independence militias do much of the heavy lifting in taking over the major cities, uh, Western neighborhoods of Jerusalem, Haifa, Biafa, and several other cities, Tiberias, and so on, before the state is established, in clearing communication routes, destroying the villages along those routes, the Arab villages, such that the Israeli army has a central position and is able to deal with the threat, which it soon faces, of these Arab armies entering Palestine. And they have unity of command and they're in the middle. I mean, anybody who's ever played a war game or has looked at strategy will know that if your enemies are on a concentric situation around you and you're in the middle, you have a certain advantage. You can move your reserves and so on. And the Israeli army, which has, has a lot of people who fought with the British, a lot of people who fought the Arabs before under the British, and then in World War II in the, in the Jewish Brigade and in allied armies, some served in the American army and the British army and so on and so forth. They're able to take advantage of that. I mean, they're, they're fighting with a conscript army, which is not the same as fighting with a, an army that's been through years and years of war together. But still, they're fighting, uh, first of all, the Palestinians who are not centralized and organized and very poorly armed, uh, very poorly supported. The Arab League gives them very little support. A very quick question. What arms are they using? Are they using imported arms? I actually don't know, especially yeah. given later uh, all the history of U.S. arms. They're shipments. buying whatever they can. Actually, both sides are buying whatever they can. So I they're mean, just trying a, to tap in a, a to the ridiculous plethora of yeah. weapons, some Czech, some British, some whatever. Um, and that's a problem. So you have different calibers of ammunition and so on and so forth. They don't have, the Palestinians don't have much in the way of heavy weapons. Um, the, the, the Israeli militias are manufacturing mortars 
which are extremely effective for terrorizing urban populations. And they use them in Jaffa and they use them in Haifa to basically scare the living bejesus out of people. I mean, I've lived in Beirut during war and mortars are really scary because they have a high, they're a high trajectory weapon. The, the thing comes down on you. The heavy artillery is much more devastating, but mortars are scarier. Anyway, so that's one element. The Palestinians are much weaker and lose enormous amounts of ground. And they lose many leaders. Uh, one of the main military leaders, Abdul Qadir Husseini, is killed in the fighting in April in a village on the road to Jerusalem. And that's a major, a major blow to the, to the Palestinians. They're also dealing with the division of command because the Arab League sends in forces that have their own command structure and they don't necessarily respond to the Palestinian command structure, which is not unified in, in the first place. The, the next phase of the war is when the Arab armies enter. And the Arab armies enter not because of some you know, unified desire on the part of the Arab countries to destroy the new Jewish state. Most of them were perfectly content to, they objected to the creation of Israel. They said, you're turning an Arab country into a Jewish country. We don't accept that. It's a majority Arab country, and you're giving most of it to the minority. So they voted against partition. But they weren't prepared or able to do very much about it until these floods of refugees start arriving in March, April, and May. And that panics these governments. because Flood of Palestinian refugees, just to be Flood clear, of Palestinian yes. refugees. 300,000 Palestinians are driven from their homes before May 15th, 1948. Oh, so in the, in the prelude people. to war, yeah. Exactly. It's war. There's two yeah. phases to the war. We've History has blotted out one of the bloodiest and nastiest phases of this war, which is the internal war within Palestine. And that's 47, the Zionist 48, movement. basically. Exactly. It starts okay. right after the partition plan is adopted on November 29th, 1947, and it continues until May 15th, 1948. And it's especially vicious in March, April, and May, when the, the Zionist militias go on the centralized defensive. They overrun Jaffa, they overrun Haifa. 60,000 people leave each of those cities almost overnight in panic, many by boat. And that's where the refugee thing starts. And then 30,000 people leave West Jerusalem at about the same time, driven out from neighborhoods like Baqa and German colony and so on, which were largely Arab neighborhoods. We think of West Jerusalem as Jewish, where there's a, the bulk of the new city to the west and northwest of the city were new Jew, largely Jewish neighborhoods, but there were large numbers of Palestinians living outside the old city, both to the southwest and to the north of the city. These people are driven out. It's about 30,000 of them. And then other cities are overrun, and then many villages. And so you have 300,000 refugees arriving either in the West Bank or in Jordan or in Syria, or in Lebanon, or in Egypt. And you have other people who've left earlier, people who had the means put their families in safety. And then, you know, my grandfather sent my grandmother to stay with her son in Nablus, and he stayed in his house near Jaffa. And so a lot of people did that um, in Jaffa and in Haifa and in other places, because they knew we were encircled and we're going to be, you know, facing a siege or whatever it may have been. And they were right. So you had, a, you had that impact on the Arab countries, which pushes them to intervene. And you have a second factor or a third factor, which is the rivalry between Arab countries. The fact that Abdullah is backed by the British to the hilt, the fact that Abdullah has been in negotiations, secret negotiations that everybody knows about uh, with the Zionists, the fact that he has ambitions to expand his domain, whether into Syria as part of a greater Syria or take over the throne of Iraq or expand it to Palestine. Remember, the Hashemites start in the Hejaz, and they once had the ambition during and after World War I to have kings of Hejaz, Syria, and Iraq, which would all be members of the same family. In other words, to rule most of the Arab 
And Abdullah has those ambitions still. And, you know, he's not got much left but Palestine, but he's going to grab as much as he can of Palestine. And he was thrilled in 1937 when the British Peel Commission would have allocated a large chunk, the largest chunk, actually, of Palestine to him. And he still intends to take what he can. And the Brits support him in this. The Brits do not want an independent Palestinian state. They've been fighting the Palestinians for decades now, the British, even though they had been on terrible terms with the Zionist movement. After World War II, um, they had no they had no affection for the Mufti or any of the Palestinian leadership, and the Palestinian leadership loathed them. I mean, I read my 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 uncle's memoirs; his his dislike and, and loathing of the British is just manifest. They couldn't stand the British, and the British knew that. There were a few Palestinian leaders who were pro Abdullah, pro Hashemite, and willing to go along with the British, but the overwhelming majority of the Palestinian elite hated the British. So the British didn't want a Palestinian state for many, many reasons. They, didn't, they weren't enamored with the Jewish state. They wanted Abdullah to take as much as he could. So other Arab rulers knew this, and they were afraid of Abdullah. He had this powerful army, uh, which was combat tested in World War II. The British used it all over the Middle East. They used it to help drive the French, Vichy French, out of Syria. They used it in Iraq. They used it everywhere in the Middle East. And so they were combat trained. They were British armed and, and officered and paid. And people were afraid of the Jordanians. They're afraid of Israel, and they were afraid of the Jordanians as well. Um, so you had disunited Arab armies of newly independent states, um, none of which had much in the way of the military. Uh, the Egyptian military was uh, sapped by corruption. Uh, one of the things that Abdel Nasser and other free officers said in 1952 when they overthrew the government is one of the reasons we overthrew the government is because they didn't provide us with the wherewithal to fight in 1948. The Iraqi government was sending troops across a desert, I don't know how many hundred miles, to, and they were under Jordanian command. And so you basically had a disorganized, disunited Arab response to what had happened up to May 15th. And you had a centralized and organized Israeli response. And then you had external support. The Brits are supporting the Arab armies. The United States and the Soviet Union are supporting the new Israeli army. And um, in the end, the Israeli army wins for a variety of reasons. Central position, unity of command, motivation, better external support, and the complete lack of unity on the part of the Arab armies. They, they, they're betraying one another at the same time that they're trying to fight this, supposedly fight this enemy. Uh, they don't tell each other about what they're planning. Each one goes off on, on their own bat. So, in the interest of time, as we have uh, spent a, a good deal on 1948, thank I'd you like so to, much for taking the time. Uh, yes, to put that on the record. Thank you, thank you Professor. <laughs> um, I'd like to take uh, in the last bit of time we have here to take a big chunk of this and sort of distill it down to some of the big events or, or big kind of themes that that run through the period between 1948 and the Six-Day War in 1967. And I think there are two main categories here. One is the external, where you have the relationship of Israel to the great powers and sort of souring relationship with the Soviet Union, uh, its developing relationship with the United States, and yet uh, it's still not the priority for, for U.S. policymakers that it would become later on. On the other right. side, you have the Palestinians who, you know, one of the ironies of the story is that the 1948 war sparks so many problems in Arab countries. I mean, there's the 52 coup in Egypt. We could go on for another hour about all the upheavals in Syria that emerge kind of out of the— There are, there are three coup d'etat in 1949 <laughs> alone in Syria. <laughs> so, three I mean, military yeah, right. coups. Starts the ball rolling on a lot of political unrest in these Arab states. And yet the Palestinian 
cause seems to be buried for for most of these these places. So why don't we right. start with a sort of overview of the external uh, aspect of this, and then we can right. talk a little bit about what's going on in right. the in the region. Well, externally, a couple of things happen. The Cold War reaches the Middle East in, in, in a big way. The rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union, you can see it during the partition resolution debates. Uh, they both are competing, in other words, uh, and, and, and strangely aligned in supporting a, a, the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. That changes very quickly. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union become enormously uh, contentious rivals. In the Middle East, the Soviets comes over time to be aligned with several of the Arab states. They start developing a relationship with Egypt and with Syria in 1955. Israel moves closer to France and Britain in this period. It's still able to gain support from the United States, but most Israeli weapons between the 48 war and the 67 war, the weapons that they win the 56 war and the Sinai war and the 67 war are British and French. They're flying mirages, they're using Centurion tanks, British Centurion tanks, French Mirage uh, and Mystere aircraft. And they're politically supported during the Suez War by Britain and France, who concoct this tale of intervening and occupying the Suez Canal to separate the Israeli and Egyptian forces. But it's, in fact, a cooked up story to justify the British and French re-invading Egypt. And the United States and the Soviet Union locked into a ferocious competition in Eastern Europe. This is the time of the Hungarian uprising, 1956, in the fall of 1956. And the Americans are hoping to put everybody's eyes on what's happening in Budapest. And suddenly the British and the French go and invade Egypt together with the Israelis. And so both the United States and the Soviets react in fury. A, we're the big boys. Who the hell do you think you are? B, the Americans say, we want people to focus on Soviet colonialism in Eastern Europe, and here you are launching a neo-colonial war on your former colonial possession in Egypt. I mean, what do you think you're doing? And the Soviets react, of course, happy to have a neo-colonial episode on the part of the British and the French to distract people from what they're doing in Budapest to crush the Hungarian uprising. And so the two superpowers, as they did in 1947, find themselves on the same side, opposing the British and the French and the Israelis, and force the three powers eventually to withdraw their forces at the end of the 56 war. The Palestinians, meanwhile, have, as you say, disappeared or appear to have disappeared. Their society is shattered. Two of the three largest Arab cities have been depopulated, Haifa and Jaffa. Um, they become Israeli cities. There's a small Arab population in part of Haifa, small Arab population in part of Jaffa, but they're basically depopulated as far as their Arab population is concerned. And these were the two economic centers of Arab Palestine. These were two intellectual centers of Arab Palestine. So the, the country is, like, is eviscerated. The majority of the population has been displaced, forced from their homes in what is now Israel, living in a variety of situations. Some inside Israel is internally displaced people, some in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, what's now the Gaza Strip under Egyptian military administration, some in the West Bank under Jordanian control, and the Jordanians actually annexed the West Bank soon afterwards in 1951. An annexation, by the way, recognized by, by nobody except, I think, Pakistan and maybe Britain. Meanwhile, the Palestinians are beginning to have what later on is described as a revival of their national movement. It's on a completely different basis, however. Instead of being led by the old urban elites, 
families like my own family, like the Husseini family and so on. It's led by lower middle class, newly educated teachers, engineers, accountants, you know, people who are not of upper class and elite families. And various organizations emerge in the 50s and later on become much more prominent in the 1960s and later on take over the Palestine Liberation Organization, which is something that had been created essentially by the Egyptians through the Arab League to contain this rising tide of Palestinian activism and nationalism. So the Palestinians reemerge on the scene in the 60s with these new organizations, which, as I say, have their roots in the 50s, but nobody saw them. And so when Golda Meir says this in 1969, that uh, there are no Palestinians that never existed, she's playing on both, you know, the old colonial thing of, you know, there was nobody here before us and this place belongs to us anyway, but is also playing on a fact, which is that the Palestinians had appeared to disappear as a factor. It was the Arab countries and Israel, which seemed to be the protagonists. And the conflict came to be coded as an Arab-Israeli conflict, i.e. a state-to-state conflict. And that's then consecrated in 1967, when after the June War, after the 1967 war, the United Nations Security Council passes UN Security Council Resolution 242, again in November. November is a big month for the Palestinians. And uh, it ignores the Palestinians entirely. It talks about a just solution of the refugee problem. It doesn't mention which refugees. The Palestinians, again, are not mentioned in this major resolution that supposedly deals with this conflict. It's essentially seen as a state-to-state conflict. If the Arab states make peace with Israel and Israel returns territories, all will be for the best in the best of all possible worlds. That's what 242 says with all these important qualifications. And so it is now seen as a state-to-state, at least by the United States and the great powers. It's a state-to-state conflict. The Palestine aspect of it, Palestinian state laid down in partition resolution of 1947, the return of the refugees laid down in the UN General Assembly Resolution 194 in December uh, 1948, all of these things are ignored. Return of refugees, establishment of a Palestinian state, the idea that the boundaries that Israel expanded to in 1949 should be somehow reduced, things that were being debated and discussed in the 50s and in the 60s, before the 67 war, are swept under the carpet. Now, the question is, Israel within its 1949 frontiers or somewhat larger, and that's the way the Americans interpret 242, they should give back territories, but not all the territories that they occupy in 67. So I, I describe that resolution, UN Security Council Resolution 242, as yet another declaration of war on the Palestinians. It's meant to establish peace, but peace between the Arab states and Israel. It does nothing about the original conflict between Zionism and the Palestinians, the settler colonial aspect. None of that is mentioned. Whereas the United Nations had earlier addressed some aspects of those things, it with 242 ceased to do that. So the period from 48 to 67 is really important. It's important for the Palestinians, obviously, but it's also important for Israel and important in terms of the positions of the great powers. The Soviets support 242, by the way. As far as they're concerned, you know, this is a done deal. There's a state of Israel within its frontiers that it had established through expansion in wartime in 48, as laid down by the 1949 armistice agreements. And that's that. The Arab states have to come to terms with that and make peace with Israel. And... Um, the Palestinians will be dealt with as a refugee question. The Soviets, the British, all the permanent members of the Security Council vote for it. The resolution doesn't pass the Security Council otherwise. And for the Palestinians, this is a terrible thing. Because once again, they're being treated as they were treated with the mandate for Palestine, as if they didn't exist, or as they were treated by the Balfour Declaration. Or as they were, in fact, treated by the Partition Resolution, because all anybody really wanted with Partition was a Jewish state. They'd made no provision for an Arab state when it was, you know, 
strangled in its cradle, nobody lifted a finger to save it, to protect it, to create it. So they argue, you know, we are, we are, the, we are not uh, uh, being justly treated in 242. And so for very long, the Palestinians refused to accept 242, which Arab states over time come to accept. Egypt accepts it. Jordan accepts it. Eventually, Israel accepts it. After the 73 war, Syria accepts it. So the state of Israel and the idea of secure and recognized boundaries and peace between Arab countries and Israel is accepted by most all the Arab competents, all the countries around Israel. After the, eventually, not immediately, nor Israel nor the Egyptians accept 242 immediately, but eventually they all do. And that leaves the Palestinians out in the cold. Because if Egypt can get back its territories or Syria or, or Lebanon or whatever, whoever feels they've lost territory, then they're fine, given that that's what 242 seems to lay down. Now, the Israelis are, they end up not accepting that the withdrawal applies to, say, the Golan Heights or, say, the West Bank or, say, the Gaza Strip or East Jerusalem, but they eventually do in regard to Sinai. And that's the basis of a peace treaty, which is signed several years later in 1979. So I have one more question about this pre-67 preoccupation period, and then I think we can wrap up. But I'm curious about the different experiences or the divergence of experiences, let's say, that Palestinians in the West Bank and Palestinians in Gaza faced, and and how Mm -hmm. much of that discrepancy can be actually rooted before the occupation in this kind of, you know, period before 1967 when you have the West Bank, which was, you know, King Abdullah wanted the West Bank. I mean, he wanted to add the West Bank to his kingdom, whereas Gaza seems to have been like nobody wanted Gaza. Egypt sort of occupied right. it for a while, but they don't ever seem to have really wanted it. They didn't treat the Gazans particularly well. And I, I, I just wonder if you could maybe talk briefly about that. And then I think, yeah, like we're, you know, for time's sake, at least we're at a good place to wrap up. Well, I mean, you're right. There's the, the West Bank is treated completely differently from Gaza. For one thing, as I mentioned, uh, Jordan annexes. And it extends citizenship to all Palestinians who are within the territory of the Hashemite kingdom. And that is the bulk of Palestinians who have become refugees as a result of the 1947-48-49 fighting. And so the integration of the Palestinians into Jordan, which is a country lacking population and whose ruler had always wanted to expand his domain, is a process welcomed by the Jordanian government. And so Palestinians now, today in 2022, are extraordinarily prominent in finance but in, in business they are the engine of the jordanian economy they're very prominent in culture and intellectual life and so on the government and, and the military and security services tend to be dominated by east bank jordanians but culture intellectual life and the economy tend to be dominated by palestinians so palestinians are completely integrated into jordan some remain in refugee camps but the overwhelming majority of palestinians in Jordan, don't live in refugee camps, even though they're all refugees or almost all refugees. So the integration of the largest single group of refugees proceeds very effectively in Jordan. They become citizens and they have no restrictions, except the same restriction on any other Jordanian, which is that it's a dictatorship. So all Jordanians, whether East Bank or West Bank, have to suffer from the fact that it's not a functioning democracy. There's no real freedom of speech, but in terms of opportunity, they have the same opportunity as Jordanians and citizenship and so on. That's also to a lesser extent true in Syria. Palestinians are integrated in Syria in a way that's different from Jordan. They don't get citizenship, but they have all the other rights of Syrians. 
go to university, they're drafted into the army, they can vote in everything but national elections, they can vote in municipal elections, and they can live wherever they want, own property, and so on. The people who are the worst treated among Palestinians in this era up until 67, up until the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, are Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and Palestinians in Lebanon. And that's for specific reasons. The Egyptians uh, did not particularly want Gaza. They never annexed it. They never incorporated it to Israel. They had a military administration there, and that was it, military government. And they didn't welcome Palestinians in Egypt. I mean, Palestinians could go study in Egypt. And some Palestinians lived in Egypt. My wife's family lived in Egypt, but they had been there from before 48. But basically, people were not welcome to. They could travel through Egypt, but they couldn't move to Egypt. So here's where this canard... The Arab countries penned the Palestinians up, while the Jordanians made them citizens. The Syrians gave them complete freedom. The places where that was the most true uh, were Gaza and, and, and Lebanon. And in the case of Lebanon, this was for sectarian reasons. Most of the Palestinian refugees were Muslim, and Lebanon had this acutely critical sectarian balance as part of a system created by French colonialism to favor their Maronite protégés. And the Palestinians would have, had they been incorporated into Lebanon, would have upset that balance. And so the Palestinians in Lebanon, at least until the PLO arrives on the scene, are not treated well. And since the PLO left in 82, they have not been treated well by the Lebanese state. So those are the two places where that description of the situation of Palestinian refugees is the truest, Lebanon and, and the Gaza Strip. And, and that's continued under Israeli occupation. I mean, God, people in Gaza live by far the worst of any Palestinians anywhere in the world. That that's not that's not just under Egyptian administration or it's been even more true under the occupation since 1967. Even though the Israeli army withdrew a number of years ago and removed settlements from Gaza, it's still under Israeli control from the outside. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. So uh, once again, Rashid Khalidi, Edward Said, professor of Arab studies at Columbia University, the book, The Hundred Years' War in Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. Thank you again so much for your generosity of time and for, for taking us through the formative periods of this conflict. Thank you for having me, giving me the opportunity. Thank you, Professor. Professor.